It's the 23rd of July, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week, bicycles, tramadol, biologics, these are but a few of my favorite things in today's broadcast. We're going to start off with a sobering statistic. Not good. You know, we've all been living under the illusion that we're going to live a long time, certainly a lot longer than our grandparents, certainly longer than our parents, and life expectancy has been going up till around 2017 when we hit the skids. This year, for the second year in a row, a record year, and a decrease in life expectancy. This has been reported by all the major news outlets, data from the CDC. Yeah, it's down. At one time, I think the highest number we saw in life expectancy in the United States was almost 79 years. Um, And this year was like the, I think the second or the biggest drop in life expectancy going all the way back to the 1930s and um, World War II. So, um, again, bad news. Um, The decrease in life expectancy is... 2.9 years for African-Americans, 1.2 years for Caucasians. The average life expectancy this year uh, is 77 years and four months. Good news for those of you who like to bicycle, like myself, um, biking is a good form of exercise. Certainly it's been my salvage during COVID when I couldn't go to the gym um, and couldn't be around people. You get on your bike and go. Turns out a nice study of almost uh, 8,000 patients with diabetes showed that regular bicycling um, was associated with anywhere from a 22 to a 32% drop in um, uh, uh, cardiovascular mortality and all-cause mortality. And actually, you didn't have to do a whole lot of biking. I mean, I think they looked at as little as 60 minutes a week and as much as 300 minutes a week. And again, across the board, there are significant benefits. Get your bike, get it tuned up, get going. Um, Speaking of tune-ups, what better than to use steroids? Bad transition. I got a series of abstracts now about steroids that I think are very interesting. Uh, First, we'll start with a regional assessment in France of the usual doses used to treat polymyalgia rheumatica. In this particular cross-sectional study of 138 patients, again, really old, 75 years of age, mostly Caucasian, uh, the average mean starting dose was 19 milligrams per day. Um, And I that's kind of interesting. It looked like if you look at the graph that they showed, almost everybody falls into the 15 milligram to 20 milligram group with a, obviously a skew towards 20 milligrams. This is certainly within range of what the of what ULAR has recommended in its PMR guidelines where they recommended a starting dose of 12.5 to 25 milligrams. Um, how does that compare to what you're doing? My usual starting dose, unless there's extenuating circumstances, is 15 milligrams. Um, and if they don't respond, I'll bump it up. But um, again, 20 milligrams is fine. The question really is with PMR, how long are you going to be on it? We all tell our patients that gigantic lie, oh, about two years. Sorry, look at the data. It's not very good. I don't have a study here today, but the data on getting off of steroids with PMR is not nearly as good as we think it is. A nice study from Beijing looked at um, your ability, my ability to get off steroids when we started for rheumatoid arthritis. This is part of a 
treat the target protocol they had going on, 207 patients. Um, of this 207, followed out for like 39 months. Only 60% were able to get off steroids. And again, that was part of the protocol. You know, wean down therapies or escalate therapies, but the goal was to get off steroids. Only 60%. But here's the good news, that for those who were able to wean off steroids, flare rates were relatively low and really quite manageable. The bad news is you were really slow at doing it, or at least they were really slow at doing it. The numbers at six months were 9%, at one year, 26%, at two years, 48%, and at three years, 58% were able to wean off steroids. Really slow. Again, with all these great therapies, combination therapies, aggressive approaches you're taking, shouldn't we be getting our patients off steroids sooner? Rhetorical question, but one to consider, especially if you consider the next two abstracts. The next two abstracts tell you of the well-known hazards of steroids. Steroids are bad for bone. High dose of steroids are cl clearly associated with bone loss and risk of fracture. Um, this particular study looked at the risk of fracture in patients on relatively modest doses at uh, an equivalent dose of 7.5 milligrams of prednisone or less. This was a study of 15,000 RA patients over the age of 50. They had 1,600 osteoporotic fractures. Um, they showed that if you were using low-dose steroids, you did not have an overall uh, increased risk of fractures. And of course, they, me they measured fractures at multiple sites. However, they did show the hazard ratio was 1.1, but it, it overlapped one, so it was not significant. But if you looked at just vertebral fractures, uh, yes, it was increased. The hazard ratio is 1.5159, a 59% increase, and it was significant. Um, confidence intervals are 1.11 to 2.29. Uh, again, evidence that even low doses of steroids will cause vertebral fractures. We've shown you in the past, low doses of steroids, 5 milligrams or less, will cause increased cardiovascular events. Low doses of prednisone, 5 milligrams less, will increase the risk of serious infectious events. Again, there's a pattern of, of disaster here. Speaking of uh, fractures, um, there's interesting data about the risk of hospitalizable vertebral fractures, vertebral compression fractures. And you know what? It's actually going up in ankylosing spondylitis. I found that surprising. Um, you know, it's hard to assess uh, osteoporotic risk in patients with spondylitis because of the increased bone being laid down in the spine. You certainly know they're at a higher risk of fracture, but they are at higher risk of vertebral compression fractures, and that rate has actually gone up significantly um, in recent years compared to a rate in RA, which has in fact gone down in recent years. Well, I found all this quite surprising. Again, the risk of, um, of vertebral compression fractures with 2.7% compared to 0.7% in RA and 0.35% in the general population. Interesting numbers. You know, um, there's a lot of things I use, and then I, and then I find out in my reporting, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's not any data for that. You know, things like, um, you know, certain joint injections, and um, last week we talked about muscle relaxants. This week's victim to the guess what, you're not so smart headline is tramadol. Meta-analysis of multiple studies, six RCTs specifically, and over 3,600 patients receiving tramadol shows that the benefits of tramadol, 100 milligrams a day, 200 per day, 
mm, you know what, it's a little bit better, but really probably not clinically meaningful when you look at the data. Maybe there's good data for 300 milligrams a day as far as reduction in pain and improvement in function. But guess what? All doses, 100, 200, 300 per day, are associated with higher rates of GI toxicity, CNS toxicity, uh, drug discontinuations, and withdrawals. So, you know, I think there's a big problem, um, especially in our management of RA patients and OA patients. I don't know what we're doing as far as pain management. I don't like that I send my patients to pain management or I don't like how they manage them, but there's an underutilization of nonsteroidals in some cases, reasonably so. There's certainly an underutilization in narcotics, and that's a big bugaboo, right? Um, now tramadol and muscle relaxants are crashing and burning, and I'm watching my residents and fellows prescribing nothing but physical therapy and rub-on diclofenac gel. I got to think we should do better than that. An interesting set of abstracts on spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, the risk of uveitis we know is less with the TNF inhibitor monoclonal antibody preparations. Um, a meta-analysis of 33 studies, 4,500 patients shows, yes, again, TNF inhibitors are good at the antibodies, not etanercept, are good at um, delaying or curtailing the risk of uveitis. But in this particular study, the, the highlight here is IL-17 inhibitors were not protective in any way. And hence, you shouldn't be using them if that's your concern or that's your objective. IL-17 inhibitors, there's many of them out there. Out there. Exekizumab has a series of trials um, being done in patients with spondylitis. It's called the COAST trials. This is a COAST-wide trial. It's a long-term open-label extension of patients who um, are in remission on ixekizumab. And what they did in the COAST-Y trial is they took those 155 patients and they randomized them either to continued therapy or to drug withdrawal. And guess what? If you continued with ixekizumab, flare rates were only um, 17%. If you withdrew therapy, flare rates were 45%. Interestingly, flare rates were very, very low in the first 20 weeks or five months of ixekizumab. So um, is it something, again, it goes, falls under a lot of my suggestions in the past about the idiocy of trying to withdraw therapy in patients who are in remission and doing well. This applies as well to ankylosing spondylitis. Um, could um, biologics possibly be protective in thwarting the onset of psoriatic arthritis in those who are receiving biologics for psoriasis. And then would you therefore not consider psoriasis as basically preclinical psoriatic arthritis as somewhere around 30% of such patients will develop psoriatic arthritis. A retrospective uh, a cohort analysis of 1,700 psoriasis patients um, looked at how they were treated and their subsequent risk of developing psoriatic arthritis. 81% were treated with topicals, 13% conventional DMARDs, and 6% biologic DMARDs. Now, there's some problems here in the way they included their groups or did their groups, and in the end, they had 239 or 14% of the 1,719 patients developed psoriatic arthritis. They did show 
uh, a decreased risk if you were on a biologic compared to topicals, but not compared to other conventional DMARTs. So there, again, I, I think this sort of scratches the surface of the possibility that more aggressive therapy could lead to a um, stalling of the onset of, of, of psoriatic arthritis or preventing it. We need better studies to actually cover this issue. Um, a big study was published this week in, um, or last week, in Annals of Rheumatic Disease, Tofacitinib's e Efficacy in Ankylosing Spondylitis. We've talked about um, the problems with new drug approvals, especially with JAK inhibitors, as everyone's awaiting the results of the 1133 study, the Pfizer study, where Tofacitinib is given or against adalimumab, and they showed risks of cardiovascular and cancer and whatnot. We're waiting for the full readout on that. But while that's going on, a lot of drug approvals have been put in, um, in weight. That includes uh, TOFA being considered for ankylosing spondylitis, and uh, um, uh, that includes UPA being considered for um, ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis. That includes a bunch of the JAK inhibitors being considered for um, atopic dermatitis, and even Jacophee, uh ruxolotinib, and, and its potential approval in graft-versus-host disease. So in this particular report, the results of their phase three trial, 269 patients with active um, ankylosing spondylitis receiving either tofacitinib or placebo. Our primary endpoint was a week 16 ASAC 20 response, 41 versus 12%. No, 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 no. 56 versus 29%, highly significant. The uh, ASAS 40 results was 41 versus 12%. Again, highly significant. No new safety signals here in this relatively small study of 269 patients. This is the kind of data that upon which um, they may, uh, may receive approval in spondylitis. Again, we have to wait for the FDA um, to act. Um, lastly, we'll close, close with a bunch of abstracts about COVID. I saw this nice article in the New York Times about can you refuse to take care of or see patients who have not been vaccinated? Obviously, you shouldn't do that. If they haven't been vaccinated, you need to talk to them and you need to bring them in. But if you read that particular citation, there's a few options in there and I added a few of my own. One, ask your patient when they're scheduling or coming in if they've been vaccinated over the phone or at check-in and then make provisions for that. One, over the phone, you could say, do you want to do a telehealth visit? Or live, you know, you want to distance them from others. Obviously, everybody coming into clinic still should be wearing masks and practicing social distancing as much as possible, even if everybody's been vaccinated. I was certainly taking care of patients who've been vaccinated, I've been vaccinated, I'm still wearing a mask, and I'm still requiring my patients to wear a mask. It's still the right thing to do. And why, you ask? Well, that's coming up in the next abstract. Other things that you can continue is obviously minimize risk to other patients who have been vaccinated by um, putting those patients right away in a room um, and basically having separation between vaccinated and unvaccinated patients. And then you need to talk to the patient with whatever strategy you're going to use to convince them that getting vaccinated is a no-brainer um, and it's a smart thing to do. And, and again, if they trust you, they should be trusting your opinion on this. Um, the abstract I was referring to was this Israeli abstract about breakthrough COVID infections. 152 cases in Israel of people who developed COVID infection 
more than seven days after their second injection with the Pfizer BioNTech uh, uh, vaccine. Um, of those 152, there were 38 who had poor outcomes, death and or mechanical and ventilation, and 22% of them, or 34, died out of the 152. Risk factors for breakthrough infection were being older, being male, having comorbidities, 40% of them were immunocompromised, a higher risk if they had received rituximab, uh, and if they had low anti-spike IgG titers. So how do you get a COVID infection after you've been vaccinated? Most cases, in fact, have occurred soon after the second or first vaccine vaccination, meaning they haven't yet had the full benefit, which is achieved two weeks and beyond after the second vaccination with a two-vaccine dosed mRNA vaccine. Um, so a lot of cases, I've had a few cases amongst my patients who have been hospitalized in that same time period. And then there are some, again, these vaccines are, as reported, 94 or 95% effective. Um, and so, uh, again, not everybody's protected. That's why even though we're all getting vaccinated, hopefully, that we should still be wearing masks until everyone's vaccinated, until this whole thing goes away. That's my suggestion. Let's close with an abstract about the growing use of cannabis. Um, uh, Caleb Mashad and his group in their study of the National Data Bank and the FORWARD study um, looked at over 11,000 patients with a variety of different forms of arthritis. Most, case, most cases here are rheumatoid, but they've got everything from fibromyalgia to PSA and AS and lupus thrown in there. And they did in their surveys, they do regular surveys of their patients. They asked specifically about cannabis in 2014 and 2019. In 2014, the number was 6% of their, their cohort was using cannabis. But in 2019, this had grown to over 18%. So it is growing. It's certainly more common in Western states. It's more common in states where cannabis is currently legal. Um, when asked, the patients said that cannabis was helpful. 74% of them said so. Uh, 8% said not helpful. And 18% were not sure, but going back for more weed. So, you know... My view on this is um, I've seen, you know, real, I, I, long, long ago I saw good data from Bob Zurier about the um, immunologic effects of cannabinoids and THC in um, uh, RA. And there is a biologic plausibility, especially for um, cannabis uh, in its many forms, less so for CBD. Um, and so while I'm not wildly in favor of it, um, I have to be in favor of it when the cost is low and when you have results like this, patients mostly saying that they're doing well. Um, I don't like the fact that I can't always point to the mechanism by which it works or predicting who, sh you know, who should be getting it or that your best advice comes from some guy named Paco behind the counter. But, you know, right now I think what we need more than anything is some... Um, structured guidelines on the proper use of cannabis since the, it is a growing phenomenon, at least in the United States. Those of you who um, live in countries where it doesn't exist, medical tourism is all I can say. Go to the website, go to the email um, to put in your question. You can record your question, comment, or case to me, and we'll discuss it here on Room Now. It's called Backtalk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what you have to say. 
You can find these citations and more on the website. Tune in next week for more of the podcast.